We haven't actually finished our preparatory reading for the next episode. I have. Um, except for John, who's who gets a gold star. Gold star for John. Yay! Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 62nd episode of Octothorpe, the podcast for science fiction and science fiction fandom, which is coming to you on the 21st of July, 2022. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. And this is a unusual episode because we are recording it because we can't record next week, a peek behind the curtain. So we're going to talk about the Hugo Award finalists for Best Novel. If you are very spoiler averse, you may wish to save this episode uh, for when you have read the finalists. And if you are not, dive in. Why not? And in the grand tradition of Octothorpe, you can, of course, feel free to listen to this episode in six months time and still send us letters of comment. I guess this is a spoiler for our discussion, but none of these, I think, are books where spoilers are really going to be a big deal. There's nothing where you are waiting, I think, for the final reveal, although I haven't finished one of the books. So... (laughs) Which does, in fact, have a a kind of final twist or two. So, you know. Yeah, but the whole book is twists or like revealing slowly things. So So we're going to start off discussing Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir. Andy Weir, of course, is an author who catapulted to recognition for his work The Martian, uh, the film of which won a Hugo Award at some point. And uh, this is his third novel, and it is about a man nailed this description yeah i would say that uh andy Weir's first book the martian was about a hyper competent man uh left alone in space to spend the whole book being extremely competent at physics and discovering things from first principles and sciencing the shit out of it and hail mary is a book in which a hyper competent man gets trapped in space alone a long way from anywhere else and spends the whole book sciencing the shit out of it with his buddy who is uh, very like him Yes. So I think one of the things that is critical about this book is that it's got 10 times as many Goodreads reviews as any of the books on the shortlist. And quite a lot of those reviews say, oh, God, this is weird and it's weird at his very best and it's even better than it was before because he manages to introduce a completely alien alien that is not like any alien ever. And then they science the shit out of things together and that is even better. And although I will grant you that the alien doesn't necessarily look like other aliens um, and weird does quite a good job of explaining why that is, the alien is a middle-aged or late 30s American man who is very good at science and likes the science the shit out of things, except he's more on the practical side of science rather than the theoretical side of science. So what you have here is a theoretical scientist and an engineer. Um, so obviously we've now covered all of the possible varieties of human and alien existence. I think I disagree with several bits of that. I don't think he's particularly American. It did annoy me he's gendered as a man, given that presumably this alien does not have the concept of gender we do. And like it would have been a very... They have asexual re- reproduction that... He chooses to, he says, probably some other gender, I'm assuming he's a man. And that is a problem, and I have a problem with that. And like, 
I have a problem with that way more than the implied middle-agedness slash Americanism of him, which I think was much less clear than the implied manhood of him, uh, given he has used him throughout. Uh, it just really annoyed me. I'm like, you could have just had... I, I grew up in the 60s and 70s. We used he and him to mean people all of the time. And, and you know, it was a thing then. I don't like how this book portrays gender. I think it is an own goal to decide that there is this alien and it would have been very easy in the point where he's like, I don't know what gender this alien is. I'm going to call it they. And Weird chooses not to do that. And I think that is annoying in 2022. And I am uh, slightly sad that that approach was the one taken, especially because I think most of the rest of the books on the ballot do a really great job with gender. Uh, This sticks out as one that does not. I mean, I think... The thing is, it seems entirely in character for our main character to go, well, maybe this alien, you know, has a different interpretation of gender. I'm just going to call him he all the time because his innermost narrative voice basically seems like it spends absolutely no time thinking about anything that isn't science. So he's just going to be like, uh, yep. I don't care about that sort of stuff. It doesn't, you can't measure it in like meters per second. It is exactly the same sort of misogyny that is rife in uh, science generally, I think. Yeah, so I can get behind it. The thing is, it doesn't really strike me as being a deliberate choice. It seems just like a sort of casual, well, that's that's what I think, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't strike me as being an author's deliberate choice so much as just a kind of like throwaway line and then he defaults to he because it's easier. I think it definitely reflects the thoughtlessness of the author. I would agree with that. Okay, so this is only the third least thing I liked about this book. Um, I really enjoyed the book, I should say. I, I, I read it all the way through without any difficulty. It's a perfectly pacey novel. Um, it is founded on two pernicious lies, both of which are much worse than what pronouns you use. The first is the perception of dictatorial tyranny is the best way of dealing with a crisis, that if you have a crisis, the best way to sort it out is to find a strong person and give them all the power and then solutions will follow. And that is what happens in this book, in the first part of the book that's told in flashback. And the second point, and that's a lie, that's a comfortable lie that lots of people like, including lots of other people who like this book. And the second problem, which is even worse, if anything, is the belief that given any problem, the way to sort it out is for one person to use their kind of generalised understanding, or maybe even two people, to use their generalised understanding of things to tackle every problem as it comes up and solves it without any ref- solve it without any reference to anybody else. Um, and that is possibly even more popular amongst readers of this book. So it's basically, these are completely cosy things that are not true this is not how any problems in the real world ever get solved and if you put it into your book yes you've generated an escapist fantasy but you know it's it's a terrible it's a terrible way to write books come on don't do it and so it's it's really it's a book for 10 year olds oh god it's awful terrible book but i enjoyed it a lot has lots of funny things in it weir writes his nerdy scientist quite well do agree with Alison on that one. I think I think it does portray like I mean I haven't finished the book, so I am assuming that you know it turns out well, and that you know giving one person the power to literally do anything to solve a crisis is the way that we should have solved it. But I think yeah, more interesting is this portrayal of like the individual who can solve things, and the book even kind of like tries to lampshade it. So there's a scene at the start where our hero protagonist, who was an, was an academic and then has gone back to be a high school teacher, I think so that he'll 
know all the stuff that you know we need to know to teach high school science which apparently equips you for you know being in in deep space and solving all problems sorry i'm digressing you know this is at the start where they're like okay we want you to be the only person working with this new uh alien single-celled life that we have brought back and the guy is like but why why me there's loads of other people and they try and like say oh we want you to be the guinea pig you know because you're expendable and then if it turns out it kills everyone you know but it just seems like they're like who should get this first oh we've picked this one person and it doesn't feel like the way in which science would work or does work and they nod towards it a bit because they then have a more international team but it, it it does seem to be very much like yeah this one person will have the skills to do everything they need to figure this whole thing out when really i think like what he's doing would be a team of 50 people what Alison just said really concretes for me why i prefer the martian to this book quite a lot which is that in the martian and like in other films like it like apollo 13 it depicts the efforts of like a team of people to fix the problem because you have like the nasa aspect of things that are happening and you have the person stranded in space aspect of things that are happening and both of those are very interesting and obviously the sort of person that gets picked to go on a mission to mars or in the case of Apollo 13 the moon is very competent at the things they need to do to get themselves out of uh, tricky situations in space project Hail Mary doesn't really have that uh and i i do agree that that is that it is weaker for it because um there's this myth of the kind of i mean this myth of the gentleman scientist which is a uh, gendered term but basically kind of the idea that people work in a vacuum and solve all these problems and are very clever themselves and modern science uh is not like that uh it may have been like that in the past but it is definitely not like that now so the more you read about the history of science the more you learn that wasn't ever the case when I was taught genetics in school, I was taught about Mendel um, essentially in a little greenhouse somewhere breeding peas. And it was only, I think, about five years ago that I learned that monasteries across Europe specialised in the area of scientific and other knowledge activity that they dealt with. And the monastery that Mendel was in, which he was poached from another monastery to go to, um, specialised in breeding because sheep breed, it was a big sheep area. And they he led a team of many, many, many monks engaged in the breeding of of um peas to get better peas he was just the first person to work out what was going on and and i had not learned any of that in school um because we have a myth of a of an old man pottering away in a greenhouse because he's a gardener or something i am employed on something called a fellowship which is entirely based around this lie but uh, it is also a lie that controls most of how science funding is done in the western world so it is a very very prevalent lie so Project Hail Mary, I also very much enjoyed. I thought it was good fun. Uh, I do like first contact stories and the part where he's working out how to uh, communicate with an alien really scratched several of my itches around kind of language and first contact stuff uh, in a way I really, really liked. Uh, so like, I will say that the the, the flaw for my Hugo ballot, because Weir is my sixth place choice, uh, is quite high because I did not hate this novel. We talk about the male gaze a lot, and this is a a book that is written from the for the pers- from the perspective of a prepubescent boy. Um, this novel is very very much has a ten year old's conceptions of all sorts of things, but I think most notably a ten year old's conception of sex. There's a there's a kind of weird scene in which. Um, Weir has decided he has to put some sex content in, may have been told he has to put some sex content in. And and the way he does it 
reminds me of the way that my children talked about sex when they were quite young, like five or six. You know, people are going to go and have sex now. That's the thing that they're going to do. And that's literally how it's handled here. And otherwise, um, we see we see none of the way that the main character um, relates in his relationship. So there's a much better book struggling to get out of here which is the book about the person who cannot form adequate human relationships who then has a really valuable interpersonal relationship with an alien who is completely unlike them but unfortunately we don't really see the first part of that when they fail to handle human relationships properly and we don't see a really alien alien for them to have a really valuable relationship with um so could be better can i have one i've got one mini rant if i may which is for a book which I'm pretty sure kind of all the the physics is... Basically, I can't follow the physics, but I'm sure it is meticulously derived. I don't think the alien language makes sense. So the alien speaks in chords, right? And he speaks in chords of up to five notes. Fine. And we also get... But we also get hints that he's describing them as things like, oh, it's the A below C major. And, you know, he drops an octave. This is the alien speaking. He drops an octave when he's sad. And I'm like, okay, how many five note chords are there, you know, within a traditional octave, if we say that for some reason the alien is using the same tonality as humans with a 12 note scale, how many chords are there that this guy is apparently managing to learn to understand language without having a laptop sitting in front of him. Because I'm pretty sure even if you have perfect pitch, you're going to find that quite tricky and that there must be an upper limit on the number of words, which is, I don't know, a few thousand? No, and this is part of the problem I had with the novel was that um, I really liked the initial bit where I'm like, oh, an alien that speaks in tones. That's a really interesting concept and learning how to understand that is really interesting. And then about halfway through the novel, it's just like, oh, it's solved. And it's like, oh, that is much less interesting because I do not believe that would happen. No, it's way too fast. I, I thought that was going to be the meat of the novel and like the whole novel was going to be a fascinating exploration of like, and then no, those, but like that quarter of the book I did really enjoy didn't really mind learning language too quickly which i'm sure is something that also happens in the martine is something in fact it has happened already in the martine is something that i think you're allowed to have for free in first contact novels because otherwise three years of accidentally getting stabbed because you've misinterpreted something is probably not that exciting it depends i think on the book if you're a book which is presenting this as very rigorously worked out and all very linearly extrapolated from what's possible, I have a lot less time for it than I do in the Martine, which is not doing that. Only science in Weir that is rigorously worked out is the things he expects people to remember from high school with a bit of a nudge. So nothing outside that space is ever, is ever explained. <laughs> Right, shall we move on to the Mas- A Master of Gin by P. Jelly Clark? This is the one I didn't finish because I didn't want to finish it. Liz can introduce this one. Liz really likes this one. I'm, I'm just trying to say I really liked it, or more that I disliked more of the other shortlist more than you two uh, did. Um, but yes, I think, I think I probably liked it the most. So, so basically, A Master of Gin by uh, P. Jelly Clark uh, is a novel of an alternate Cairo, essentially, where there are uh, supernatural entities were released from their dimension kind of onto the world. And this has completely changed like the balance of power in our world uh, at the start of the 20th century. 
and and we follow a eventually an investigative agent uh, named Fatma who is investigating the murder of a secret brotherhood who seem to be looking for relics from the man who opened this doorway into other dimensions and of course there's a strong supernatural element to it so she ends up you know roaming around Cairo with her you know agent who's been assigned as her partner and she's kind of rubbing up against this new partner that she's been assigned um her mysterious girlfriend who is definitely more than meets the eye and un- uncovering basically what happened to this brotherhood and what it what it means to and she'll have to save Cairo from kind of the supernatural threat that is coming yep i i really liked this book i found it to be uh, as they say a page turner I liked finding out what happened. I liked some of the concepts a lot. I liked the magic. Yeah, I really generally enjoyed it. And it makes me want to go back and read some of the preceding stuff in this world because I know that there have been kind of... I've read The tram, the Haunting of Tramcar 015, but I don't think I've read any other stories in this universe. Uh, so at some point I need to go and do that. I think there's only one other story actually in the universe, so you're nearly there. Ooh. So I would have happily carried on reading this if I hadn't run out of time, but I didn't really like it very much. And that's because it's a police procedural set in a kind of fantasy city. And I feel I've lot of, read a lot of books like this before and I find, feel like it was competent, but it wasn't really doing anything that wasn't that was beyond that. And I really didn't believe... So the central character is a hard bitten cop who works alone right who is also portrayed as being a young muslim woman who is not very observant as opposed to her assigned partner who is a much more observant um, muslim and i didn't believe in it i i read it and i was like well this is just travis mcgee you know it, it, it's it, it has none of Clark is very pleased that he's got all these women in his thing, but none of them do any women things at all. Um, so this is just a a, a a boy in a woman's suit, and I really, really didn't have any time for that. And when I was kind of going, I, don't, I really didn't get into this book. Stephen said, "Well, you know, the problem is that the central the central characters don't ra- ring true as women." And I was like, "Oh." Okay, so maybe it's not just me then. So if you're a woman and you really identified with um, Fatma, then do please tell me because I don't believe in that character at all. Yeah, there's, there's not like I can say other than I disagree with Alison and I really like the central character. I mean, yes, it is the kind of hard-bitten detective. It's just that the hard-bitten detective in this case is a woman, but I didn't have any problems with her not doing specific women things to tell me she was a woman. I'm quite happy with that. And young and cynical despite being young. Yeah. Well, and and also, well, Liz is quite cynical despite being young, Alison. So, like, I feel like that might have rung true. She's much younger than Liz. She's like 28 or something. Liz was quite cynical when Liz was 28 or something. I've known Liz for a while, Alison. Uh, Liz Liz is a good egg. Uh, Maybe that's why I got along with Fatma so well, because I was like, that's Liz, that is. (laughs) Also, it, it's not the character I, it's not the sort of character I tend to want to read about. It's more the thing because police procedural, not my sort of book. That's a very different criticism, though. I would also say that, you know, in the setting, you know, it is rare for there to be female detectives. 
Um, and so I think there's a lot of interesting stuff about one. She probably would be extremely cynical if you were in that position as a coping mechanism. And I do like that, you know, the, it is a cliche of, oh, the grizzled detective is given, you know, I mean, she's not grizzled in age, but kind of grizzled in mentality, is given the partner she doesn't want and then, you know, comes to a kind of understanding with them. But I, I did actually enjoy that sort of clash of approaches they had going. Uh, and I thought that was quite well done. I thought I definitely believed the thread in the novel where they don't get along at the start and they become more and more aligned through the book. And I believed the arguments they have and I believe the friction and then I believe it kind of aligning towards the end and the trust coming. Uh, and I thought that was actually quite well done. I did. I enjoyed parts of the mythology, but like, I don't know, for me, as as we have discussed previously, and as we will discuss later, uh, plots are a thing to hand characters around. Uh, so uh, I was very much more focused on uh, them just being awesome together, which I did enjoy. Ooh, also 1912. Did this feel like 1912 to you? Did this feel like a historical novel set in 1912 to you? Because it did not to me. Yeah, I mean, that's tricky, right? Because it isn't. It's an alt history. I don't know... Like steampunk books, like I don't know how much a steampunk book needs to feel like it's Victorian because it isn't Victorian. So I don't know how much of a pass to give it. I think the bits where there's a bit where Fatma kind of interacts with real world characters given a a kind of twist in this alt history. And that I didn't, I thought that was one of the weaker parts that didn't really add much to me or feel particularly kind of completely thought through. But otherwise, I'm kind of happy to give everything a pass in a sort of like, oh, it's an alt history 1912 where, you know, things have progressed very quickly since they have this kind of supernatural power floating around everywhere. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it didn't bother me. There are definitely, I'd, I will definitely say there are better alt histories. I do think it's probably easier to write alt history that is within living memory. We, we can research history even before people were born, John. I mean. What outrageous. We know what detective novels written in 1912 were like, for example. You know, th there were plenty of them. It definitely didn't feel like a Sherlock Holmes book. Yeah, no, it didn't. It, it, felt, like a, it felt like a kind of mid-century police procedural. It's fine. I mean, I, I will finish this book now. I, didn't, I don't want people to think I threw it aside, I threw it aside with, good for, with brute force or anything. I, I, it's not that bad. As a fantasy, I enjoyed it very much. And I enjoyed it very much as a fantasy where you're using the alt history basis to have like interesting things happening in europe that haven't quite boiled over yet I, I i think that some of the geopolitics felt very cool and like egypt positioning itself in that as a result of the fact that egypt is like a magical superpower that all felt really nice and i don't know how you do that if you said it in modern times so i do i think the alt history is more to get an interesting geo geopolitical situation than it is to explore what it was like to live in 1912 and i think that's valid because i think like you can pursue alt histories for different reasons and pursuing it for that reason didn't feel like a piss take to me if that makes sense and it, i mean it's very specifically in that time and place so that you can explore kind of the colonialism of the great powers at the start of the 20th century so i think that's a very like deliberate choice to explore that I mean, and, and again, um, I think I, it's towards the bottom of my ballot, but again, I it did enjoy it uh, quite a lot. So um, hurrah. I will say I've just looked up the um, other books in the universe and I had got the impression from reading it that there would probably be loads of other stories that like all tied in. And there's like two, one of which I've read, and the other one is a novelette. And I'm like, how 
It felt definitely like I think, and this is probably to the credit of Clark. It felt like I was being dropped in media res into like a big universe that was already there, and I was seeing a snapshot of it, and it felt big. And looking at the universe, like the murder bot story um, from last year, felt nowhere near as much of a massive universe that I was just seeing a glimpse of as this does. Despite the fact that there's been like four other books in that series, and this one is a much smaller series, but feels massive. And I'm like, I did quite enjoy the scale. I, I thought that was really cool, and I think that suits Cairo and like the geopolitics again. I think that 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 was neat, but it did confuse me slightly when I was like, oh, there's just one novelette, huh? Yeah, I, I was surprised to discover there was a novella and a novelette and I wasn't actually being dropped into the the third or fourth novel involving these people because, you know, could have been. I think there are going to be more now. I think I think we are going to see this as a franchisable product. Mm. Um, I'm looking forward to the Netflix series. Is there a Netflix series? No, I just think there will be. It's the sort of thing. So next up, we're going to talk about the galaxy and the ground within. Alison, do you want to introduce this one? The galaxy and the ground within is the fourth of Becky Chambers' Wayfarer series, and I haven't read any of the other ones. So, but people said, oh, it doesn't matter very much. And I don't know whether it does or not. Um, Chambers says that this is a capstone for the series. So it kind of makes sense if you think of it as this is showing how the universe goes on after presumably the much more engaging events of the previous novels. But this is, I described it as a bottle episode of her, of her series. And I have seen other people describe it as the breakfast club with aliens, which is probably a better way of looking at it. You have some people who come together because they have been forced to stay together due to circumstances and they come from four different alien species as two of one. And they have the sort of conversations that you have when you're stuck in one place with people you don't know and then the book ends. So if you're looking for plot in your science fiction novels, it's there's not a lot, but I'm not necessarily looking for plot and I am totally up for a novel of interiority where people have a massive um, personal growth as, as, a, as a result of this sort of being thrown together. And um you could have that with aliens, and I think that's a very interesting idea. And I quite enjoyed it, but I'm not sure it really... I don't think it's got enough um, character development, even within that, to, to sustain a novel. So I think this is very slight. I think if you like your um, science fiction to be very slight, then you'll probably like this quite a lot. And I definitely liked it more than The Clark or The Weir, but there's not enough to it. I think I will. I think I will say... Uh, it is really interesting to see someone read this and assume that the previous books have like somehow got loads of plot in no like the first book is about a ship and it has some people on it and they talk a lot while some things happen and then that's the end of the book bloody love that book the second book explores one of those characters and some other characters doing much the same thing the third book explores a different one of the characters from the first book and some of those characters uh and it doesn't even really explore one of the characters from the first book it explores someone who knows one of the characters from the first book and the link between the fourth book and the first book is that ashby who is the human with whom one of the characters is in love is one of the characters from the first book that is the single tie these are not like it's not some big crescendo and this is like a super chill capstone they're all 
Chambers's style is very much focusing on character in small, not all that climatic circumstances. This is, I think, uh, probably quite typical of her writing. It is not like unusual in that regard. Um, yeah, I, I have gathered this from my post post reading analysis. I really liked this book because I really liked the characters and I really liked watching them interact. Uh, but I completely understand why these books are quite divisive in the community. I'm definitely going to read all of her others. Really enjoyed it. Liz, do you want to talk about division in the community? Yeah, so I read the first of Becky Chambers' uh, quartet of books and I didn't really like it. There's a bunch of characters who have, a, you know, they do some, some talking and there's some like mild peril and it gets resolved and it, it's all happy at the end. And in this one, uh, well, I mean, I think it was almost better than the first one because in the first one it felt very much like she felt there had to be something going on. And so there were sort of things going on. And in this one, she's just decided, actually, I don't need anything to be happening other than there are some characters who are on a planet and they are, you know, talking to each other and we're learning about their characters and their species and stuff. And I mean, it's fine if you want some aliens who, you know, are described physically as being very alien, but in fact, um, you know, all talk like people and sound very much like people and they have some discussions and they clash mildly and then they mostly resolve them at the end and there's some nice bits it's fine but i didn't enjoy chambers first book and i wasn't expecting to enjoy the fourth one and i didn't enjoy it i don't know i can't understand the appeal particularly because i think you could do a lot of this stuff um i think you can i think you can tie character and plot together and i prefer books which do that and this one is like nah i don't need to do that i'm not gonna bother it's all very cozy I guess if you had a book that did the intercharacter stuff as well as this book and had like a really great plot, I would also very much enjoy this book. I do find that Chambers's approach to character is really good in a way that I think very few other writers manage. Like, for instance, in the kind of other books in this category, I think the only one that gets close to doing the interpersonal stuff as well as this book does is the Martine. It's not a coincidence that the Martine is much higher up my um like order of voting because I think it does do that melding uh plot and character work very, very well. Um but like I will say I'm not sure any of the other books do the character work anywhere near as well as this novel does. The tension in this book arises firstly because two characters get into a political argument and, and the book has been so cosy up to that point you're you're shocked when this happens and then secondly they immediately set aside their differences to to work on a common crisis so in the martine there's a scene very early on where two characters have actual political differences that matter to the to the bigger picture story and then immediately afterwards, one of them immediately lets that go because something excites them scientifically and they need to use their scientific knowledge to solve the problem, which they do, thereby showing scientists working together to, to solve something. Um, and it's just, A, I don't think the characterization is notably worse than in the chambers, and B, that occupies about two pages of the book. Um, so I feel that the Chambers also has a thing about lack of density in terms of a science fiction novel. 
that that this is <laughs> that that this is a novel for some for people who like their novels to not get not do very much or not require very careful reading either because if you read the Martine at the speed at which I read the Chambers you would um you would miss about ninety five percent of what's going on in it. The Martine has huge amounts of glances and people saying things they don't quite mean and and Chambers does this but it it's all much more spread out. I quite I, I so I, I I have ranked the I have ranked the Chambers third in my big list of books for the Hugos. Uh, I did quite enjoy it. I think I enjoyed it better than uh, three of the others. What did you say, Liz? You just said you'd like your books to have some plot in them. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the thing is, I, I'd like my books to have plot and character, ideally. And if it has as little plot of the Chambers, I need the character to be more. Yeah, it's more that I just can't see why. <laughs> Like it's tricky. Like sometimes that you can't. It's very difficult to predict the bits of a book that will work well and the bits that won't. Well, I went away from this thinking I will read a lot more Chambers. I'm going to read it all. It's great. I I might read. There's maybe the sort of books I read in the bath or on airplanes. I read Long Way to a Small Angry Planet on my honeymoon on the beach in Corsica, and it was ten out of ten for that use case. Uh, but yeah. I will say that the long way, the long way for a small angry planet did make me want to throw it across the room. And this one did not make me want to throw it across the room. I think she has grown as a writer and it feels much more developed as a novel, whereas the one way to a small angry planet felt incredibly episodic. That was one thing I really didn't like about it. It felt like six episodes of a TV show kind of jointed together. So yeah, but the problem is it's clear that she has grown into a writer that I still don't get along with. So, Which is like entirely fair. I- I could definitely see that this is a very specific style of book and I can appreciate why there are people who like it and people who don't. The interesting thing about it to me is that the two writers on this list who are the writers that people come up to me who are not in our community and say, have you read X? Because I know you like science fiction, are Chambers and Weir. They're the two writers that have really burst out of our community and are working like with people who do not follow like all the stuff we talk about. And so clearly they are doing things that... like people like but clearly not because i don't think spoilers listeners i don't think either of these books are going to win the hugo uh so um i yeah clearly not in the world con kind of niche uh clearly not as as well received um but it is interesting i bet they're selling a lot of books to non-science fiction fans but not the same non-science fiction fans as well i bet the people who are saying oh i love the becky chambers are not the same people who are saying i love andy weir that is true, I think. I might be wrong, but I think it is. Oh, they should collaborate. I'm going to introduce She Who Became the Sun. I was about to say, speaking of books I wanted to throw across the room harshly. Yeah, Alison, Alison didn't get along with this one, Liz. But it ended up as my third, so... She Who Became the Sun. She Who Became the Sun is a book by Shelley Parker Chan. It is the first book by an Australian author on the Hugo ballot. First best novel of finalist from an Australian. So therefore it has broken out a little bit in Australia and it's getting read by a lot of people because of that, which is quite nice to know. She Who Became the Sun by Shelley Parker Chan is a book which is about a monk called Zhu Chongba, or are they called that? Uh, basically there is a young girl who lives in a village and is a time of famine and everything's very bad and bandits 
kill her dad and her brother and she assumes the identity of her brother in order to secure her fate and she goes on an adventure she becomes a monk and then she gets an army and then lots of other things happen uh i've nailed this description it's a surprisingly difficult thing to talk about because i enjoyed it but from my perspective not much happened because she was much the same person at the beginning that, that she was at the end. And really, like, no one really changes. And, like, it just felt like I was reading the same passage, but about different battles repeatedly. Which I liked, and it was well done. And some of it was, like, some of the joining bits were very interesting. But, um, yeah, found it a little bit long and a little bit repetitive. Uh, and it took me the longest of all of the books to read, I think it's fair to say. Which isn't to say I didn't like it. I liked it less than all the others except the Weir. Liz had it as a pick um, many episodes ago. I did have it as a pick. She did, and we ignored her like fools. I was excited to read it thereby. I thought the opening was fantastic. I've seen this described as misery porn, but I quite liked it. I was really excited by this book after the first chapter in which terrible things happen. John said, she was trying to fulfill her fate. But what she does is adopts her brother's fate as a deliberate thing, that her brother was told by some fortune teller that he was destined for greatness and then dies. So she decides that greatness is a thing that you can go and get. And then she goes and gets it. Um, so I really, really like that bit. And then she goes off and has a kind of absolutely terrible growing up in a monastery section, which is and passing for a boy section, which is just awful. It's big in, awful in big ways. It's awful in small ways. I was like, this book is terrible. Everything about this book is terrible. I cannot cope. And then it, once it gets out of that bit, she then has a, the first bits of leadership where the plot gets, you know, she does a thing where she's like, she forces an avalanche to happen. And my disbelievers suspenders went spung at this point. I was this is complete tosh that, you know, there has never been so much tosh written in a novel as I am reading here right now. Come on. And then after that, I kind of got into a bit more and quite liked it. When I heard that the author had been inspired by Chinese dramas, I was kind of like, well, I can see a bit of that because I think they have a lot of this um, complete nonsense in them. And, and you know, and I, I kind of got on with that bit a bit. But in fact, there's, there's actually less of it. When she actually gets into the big politics stuff, it's not as bad, but it's still not good. And anyway, except that the overall conception of it, I, I ended up quite liking and um, and it's better than the chambers because unlike John, I think stuff does happen in this novel, and I think characters do develop, not necessarily her. I like the B plot quite a lot, um, with the um, with the other the other side, and I quite liked it. Uh, but it took a lot of going. I would never have, had I not been doing Hugo reading, I would not have read. I would not have picked this up book up. I would not have read it, and I definitely wouldn't have finished it. So you know, but still quite like some of it. But I had to set aside a big pile of nonsense. That's the big reservations. I think I've said bigger reservations on this one. So it's a book that... So I'm giving it some points for trying to do something epic and, and not quite getting there. Because I like books that try to do epic things. Yeah, I, I liked it. I'm not sure... Yeah, I can't pinpoint exactly why you're saying some bits are nonsense and then some bits are okay. But I mean, what I liked about it is I think, one, it is following kind of a historical, you know, using a historical backdrop that I haven't seen done that often and using it in a way which I think 
there's a lot of interesting stuff about gender and gender roles. And especially, you know, when you say Zhu doesn't change, I think that what she does is kind of, it's, it almost feels like she is in some ways unchanging, but in, in, in some ways kind of adjusting what she learned as a child and realizing kind of like what she has to hide in order to be successful as a man and maybe the fact that she has a very strong sense of her own identity and the fact that she's going to take this fate and she's going to make this fate hers is kind of the interesting thing about her um and i i really liked how that you know it, it contrasts like she feels like she's never kind of comfortable um being a man but it doesn't feel like she would have been entirely comfortable in the role of a woman and how much of that is her and how much of that is the, the gender role society she's in and then you you contrast that uh kind of with the opposing opposing general um Aoyang um who has a you know another completely different take on kind of gender roles and and sexuality and I thought that was like by far the most interesting part about the book if that had not been there then I agree that maybe I would have not really wanted to read it just as a sort of straight historical fantasy if it was about a peasant boy you know rising to to power and the you know the general who opposes him but with that put on top of it I really enjoyed it I will say I think the character development or the character manipulation of the b-plot uh, in the enemy camp uh, was uh, I did enjoy those bits I didn't have a problem with the avalanche because I don't think she does it on purpose she prays to the gods and then she does a thing and I don't know it's open to interpretation I guess uh, but yeah I didn't I didn't mind that I see all of the points you've made and I uh, recognize that they're probably well done but like it did I never got excited to read more of this novel which is why it is uh, towards the bottom of my do. And also it is the first in a series and I have no inclination to pick up the second or the third or the fourth. So when Parker Chan does another series doing something different in a different place, I'll go and read the first of those, I think. I think, yeah, and I think it ends pretty well. Like I didn't feel like the cliffhanger is anywhere near as bad as some other cliffhangers I've seen. But also, I and maybe I'm wrong, I assumed it's first half of a duology. I, I assume in the next book, Zhu will become the emperor. Uh, and I might be wrong, but that's kind of, it felt very much to me like part one of a two-part story in a way that I can't quite quantify. Um, but if anyone knows, write in, listeners. It's a duology, apparently. There you go. Oh, okay. Hey, the, the, see, I'm good at John, books. John's trivial superpower is detecting how long a series is from the first book. I agree with Alison. It is a it is a little bit long and it does get a little bit repetitive. Um, but I wonder if that was partly based on, you know, whatever historical structure is there that you kind of feel there's a bunch of like historical events you have to tick through. Well, and also I wonder whether, because if it is based in, because I knew it was based, I know it's like the author wanted to do like a queer Chinese kind of uh, story. Um, but if it is specifically based on sea dramas, maybe part of that comes from kind of um the structure of television and television episodes because now you when as soon as i can't remember was it alison or liz who said that that was one of the influences i can't remember sorry listeners sorry people it was me i think it was alison but i would agree with alison it does feel like there's a c-drama influence on it so then that really made me think oh maybe the repetition i felt was the kind of influence of a kind of television structure on the novel because uh, i don't I, and i suspect it wasn't conscious but i wonder whether that kind of that style of plot beat if it came from the television that would make a lot of sense to me in my head 
yeah, having that sort of like reversal of fortunes. I started feeling a lot more charitable about it when I learned that she was influenced in influence of sea drama is trying to bring some of that because I don't think there is enough of that in SF and fantasy. So in the end, I like I ended up liking it a lot more than I had when we went through. I think I have a general cross cutting point about the dead hand of plot in novels, which in in the weir is in the body of the oh, what's her name Strat the woman who jerks the plot around to suit her. Um, and in this one is the fate that drags the plot around. Um, and and authors should hide when they're being authors a bit better than either of these two novels. I'm not sure I wholly agree with that because I think it's kind of the other way around, but I know what you mean. Light from Uncommon Stars by Rika Aoki. And this is a book about a violinist getting some violin lessons. So, no, this is a book primarily, I think, about what it is to make things and what it is to be part of a community and what it is to be authentic. And it is a book about how you balance the pressures of who other people want you to be with the pressures of who you actually are. I very much enjoyed it because I really thought the ways it talks about those themes were things I found really interesting and they are things that I care about quite a lot. Like basically I'm the sort of idiot who like you'd be like, where do you want to get dinner, John? And I'm like, well, I don't want to go there. That's a chain restaurant. I think a lot of the considerations in here about kind of small community endeavors versus kind of other approaches really resonate with me as a result so i i think this book was probably kind of probably pandering to me a little bit but i did very much enjoy it i also very much enjoyed the description of kind of being trans and how that intersects with how that intersects with sexuality and kind of i really thought that was really interesting because obviously i don't have that perspective and so seeing that perspective kind of on the page was really i thought was really uh kind of nice to see um so yeah in general very much enjoyed this one this is the second on my ballot uh, as a result i kind of go back and forth on this one because i think it does some things very well like i agree with john it's got all those themes in it's got kind of like yeah how do you find your identity and keep your identity particularly in immigrant communities in a community of maybe people who are like yourself or unlike yourself I just felt kind of it, it did that really well at the start. And then I'm not sure it really expanded upon it into making a satisfying novel. I mean, we should say that there is there is some plot going on here, which is that there is a woman who made a deal with the devil to sell the souls of violin prodigies to them. And so she is, she finds Katrina, the, the violinist who is going to be her seventh soul that she will sell and reclaim her soul from damnation. Yeah, I never did think that would happen. Not for one minute. Spoiler. No, that's the thing. She sort of that that's obviously never going to happen because it's a, in many ways a very sort of sweet book and you you can't imagine ever that you know Katrina who has overcome so much to to live the life she wants to live is going to end up having her soul sold to the devil for all time. Uh, yeah. It's not as sweet as the chambers, I should say. If you're considering the sugar content of novels then then the chambers is definitely top of our list. Well, it's absolutely not as sweet as that because before the novel even starts she's had a massive amount of trauma and she continues to have that 
at the start of the novel and she finds essentially this safe safe haven which is not really a, a safe haven because it's with the woman who's really looking for the seventh soul to sell to the devil it's just i i really like the first bit and then i felt it just kind of like kept going and then eventually ended and there's some sort of subplots that feel like unsatisfactorily um resolved like the woman becoming the violin uh, repair person that she was always told she couldn't be and things like that never just sort of, sort of never seemed to kind of end up anywhere does that make sense I I love this book with some reservations, which I'll get to. I I'm interested in John's conception of it because I don't think this book is quite as sweet as it makes out because it is a great big everything donut of a novel. I didn't say it was sweet. I think I said that. I didn't entirely get it as being a novel about community and one's place in it, so much as I thought it was a novel about families, both biological and chosen families and the sorts of abuse that arises in those families even when you don't necessarily intend for it to and that that was the thing that over you know that seemed overarching to me which was not sweet I thought it was extremely careful and there were multiple examples of it and they were all very well done and I thought it's great because it's doing this hilarious story about uh, a, a kind of demon and violins and space aliens and this and that. It is a great big everything donut of a book. Far too many themes have been put into this book and and some of them come out right and some of them don't. But it keeps this lightness of tone while dealing with some extremely troubling things. And I I really, really liked that. But I have some reservations about it, which I can go on to. But it's still my second choice book by miles because I thought it was doing something really different and I like books that are different. Little reservations, and they are quite small. At the end of the book, Katrina, who is the violinist, her plot arc gets wound up substantially before the end of the novel, which then goes off and talks about um, her mentor and the space aliens. And they get the end of the book, and I don't think that's entirely deserved. And there is a bigger problem with it in that it's busy being a feel-good novel about finding your own identity and living with it but characters in this book are doomed to hell for all eternity and the people who do that don't get brought to bear for doing that and there's another thing in which two teenagers get murdered and characters who are we left as being who who have presented us to being positive wholesome characters clean up the mess and nothing more is done about it and in both of those cases I was like you can't have that stuff in this book so it felt under edited to me because I feel like a reputable editor would have gone come on you've got to sort this out and and you could perfectly well have sorted it out that's why they're minor reservations I go yeah no I can see how you could get around both of those things I think you might be right about the violin lady and the the, the mentor and the aliens getting the end of the book because I do think it is really Katrina's story. And one of the things I wanted to say to you, so you said it was unbelievable that the mentor would sell Katrina's soul. It is really notable to me that at no point does she actually sell a soul. She, in every case, basically says to them, you can sell your soul and you will be, you will have all the fame you want. And she is selecting people who want the fame when they're children as a result of grooming well no they don't they make the decision as adults as a result of grooming yeah but there's a clear thing here which is that katrina gets asked the question and she says no initially 
And then she says yes when she realised that saying no means that the mentor will be damned. And she makes that decision because she wants to trade her soul for the mentors. And then the book kind of engages in a little bit of chicanery and makes it all okay on both counts, which, you know, I actually I quite liked it. Like, I was glad that they resolved it. It felt like less of a cop-out than it might have done. There was still a little bit of a cop-out. Uh, equally, I'm not necessarily all that bothered by cop-outs in media because Return of the Jedi is my favourite Star Wars movie. <laughs> but... I do think like, and and you're entirely right about the grooming, but I think the book attempts to kind of distance itself from the horror of what she's doing by by kind of employing that strategy. I'm not sure the extent to which I think the book really grapples with that. And I don't know whether, like you said, the thing about the two kids getting murdered, like the character who does the murder is punished, but like not with anything approaching due process. So that's a problem. And so like, yeah, there are bits in this book where I'm like, yeah, maybe you didn't need that plot beat. The central thing of the book being like, the problem is that when a civilization reaches significant enough size, they all just realize that life is entirely pointless and everything just goes to hell. I was like, oh, that is an interesting concept uh, and I really, really enjoyed that and I feel like I want to read a book that is much more about that because that was uh, an idea. Well, when I, when I talk about this being a bit of an everything book, there's so much here. There are so many fizzing ideas that you could have spun a novel off. Yeah. And and it would have been good if somebody had said to Aoki, well, maybe, maybe you could just sort of <laughs> tighten the boundaries of this novel a little bit. No, very excited by this book. Very excited by the possibilities in it. Enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, definitely my second choice of these. Yeah, so, I mean, you have picked up one of the things I had a problem with. Basically, I think it it feels a little uneven, kind of the sections where it feels very little moves on. And then we do have this segment where, yes, as you say, one of the aliens who is being, you know, bullied by some random teens decides the best way to respond to that is to go and murder them. And then like his family's response is, oh, we'll clean it up and we'll never tell anyone what happened and we'll just put you in stasis to deal with later. And then that's kind of it. It's kind of an astonishing thing to happen in the middle. And I had to double check, you know, because I read five pages and I was like, did they really just do that? And, and they did. Yeah. So I found that quite shocking. And I think like that kind of exemplified what I feel about the book, which is it sort of drops these nuggets of uh, these nuggets of things like that, or like like as John said, the giant idea about when civilizations will will collapse. Um, and then I'm not sure it kind of completely follows through with them. Um, but I so I, I did enjoy kind of big chunks of it, and I think it does have some good characters, and I I, I liked a lot of the setting, and you know, there's a lot of great descriptions of. Of food and the importance of food and the importance of you know um, what how food makes you feel. Oh, I loved all that. But I think then it's like actually maybe it does that one too many times. They go to about six different restaurants and say, and this restaurant serves this food, and and it, it makes people feel, you know, reminded of their home or reminded of. I, I thought Aoki probably writes in noodle bars. I'm not sure that I thought that. Because the bit where the bit where the alien kills the teens is clearly like a radicalization thing, right? Like the you see the teen being radicalized through the novel, like in favor of this kind of imagined homeland, and he like starts becoming more and more and more jingoistic, and then it eventually culminates with this horrible thing, and they're basically like, "Oh no, this is a problem," and they and they stasis him. Um, and I did think that was an abrupt end, uh, and I think you know. I wonder whether you could have told that same, you had that same narrative thread, but without quite the abrupt end that it ends up having. 
But I will, I think I disagree with the civilization ending nihilism not following through because I think one of the interesting things about it is that it does follow through in the characters, like the conversations that the head alien and the violin lady have are, I think, exploring that from a very character focused and, and carrying that theme through to the end of the book with a very character focused thing rather than a very plot focused thing and i i actually really enjoyed that especially because i think the the perspective the violin lady basically comes to is well if nothing matters then we get to define our own existence and this is not a problem for me and the alien's like there and i i really like that because like i am a nihilist but not a nihilist who thinks that nihilism is a reason to give up if that makes sense i've always been like nothing matters so everything i do has the meaning i attach to it and that means i have to be careful what i do and i have to put like things i like into the world because there's nothing else that will do that for me because there is literally no reason or meaning in the universe and so i've always felt that to be freeing and i really enjoyed the way this book talks about it i think this book comes very close to explicitly saying that human art and music and possibly also donut making are the things that will that could not just cure the what's it called the existential plague yeah um for everybody not just for humanity that's the the the, where the point the book comes to on this well i think the book is arguing that making stuff is what makes meaning in the universe and it would be hard to argue with that and I think I mostly agree with that as a person who makes a thing. So, yeah. Yeah, I think several parts of this book actually resonate with me. Uh, and, and actually, I thought a lot of the themes were very similar to Everything Everywhere All at Once. That's uh, why I mentioned the Everything Donut. Yes, it was a good, it was a good joke. Liz, do you want to set us on the home run, home straight? Okay, so our final book is A Desolation Called Peace by Arkady Martin, uh, which is the second book in her Texcalan series. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, Anyway, so um, what is going on here is we were left at the end of the first book with um, an empire where uh, kind of the overthrow of the empire had narrowly been foiled and we have a new emperor in place and and two of the characters who were heavily involved in that we have three uh seagrass um essentially an information uh analyst and mahit dismar who is an ambassador from um a space station that is not part of the texcalan empire but has a kind of very uneasy uh, peace with it they end up as part of a conflict with another uh, alien race, which is lurking on the edge of their space and no one can communicate with it. Um, And it's kind of about how this uh, war or conflict unfolds um, and strategically how this conflict is being used by all the different players in this empire and by this, this station um, that isn't part of the empire, but which it has its own agenda. How they're kind of using this war and manipulating information um, and manipulating the politics of the situation to each get their own ends and how essentially Three Seagrass and Mahit come in and mostly disrupt that um, by being themselves. Um, yeah, and I I really, really liked it. I think I do just want to say that I have uh, just checked how I pronounce and the name of the the civilization is Texcalan. But given it's made up word, 
don't think it matters much. Thanks, Callan. Well, it's presumably based on a on a real uh, language, but I mean, given how important like linguistics is to this book, <laughs> I should probably be able to at least pronounce the name of the empire. So, so it is it is a sequel to a memory called Empire, which won the Hugo. Yeah, it's just got all the sort of stuff I like, which is it has it has uh, politics, it has intrigue, um, it has characters who are trying to kind of forge their own relationship in the face of uh, you know in the face of their upbringings, in the face of how they feel about people from these different empires. It has first contact with an alien species. It has, um, you know, the use of language and poetry for communication, hidden information. Um, it has a really good sex scene. It's got lots of good stuff. Oh, that, that last bit was a spoiler there. There's a sex scene in it, Alison. I'm looking forward. I've been looking forward to the sex scene in this novel ever since about... 10, 10 pages into the first one. So that's pretty good. Loved the first book. Um, I, I, I have a joke about for this episode, and this is it, which is that I look at these six novels and I think what we have here is five pedalos and a swan. And the Martine is the swan. This is a book that is just so much better than any of the other books that it's hard to believe they're in the same book contest. Um because it does all of these things. I, I mean, I haven't got to the end of the second one yet. So, um, but I was kind of like, can the second one be as good? And it was like, oh no, it's actually engaging right there from page one with the alien, which is the thing that the first book doesn't do. And I was like, oh yes, yes, it definitely can. I'm, I'm loving it. Had to tear myself away to come and do the podcast this morning. Thanks, Alison. So having so much fun with this book. Um, Oh, this is this is what this is what I read science fiction for. Does it get better than this? Um, yeah, <laughs> love it to bits. Don't really want to criticise it too hard because you know it might break if you look if you if you apply your critical chisels to it with too much intensity. It's a fantastic book, <laughs> and I'm only halfway through, so hopefully it doesn't it doesn't fall apart in the last two hundred pages. Be a bit sad if that happened. I don't think it does. I I do think. The previous year in which the Martine novel was in it, I also felt that year that the Martine was kind of head and shoulders above its com- competition. I I really adore as a writer. I think she is fantastic. And yeah, I had heard some people say that the second book was not as good. And firstly, I think I enjoy the second book as much, partly because I really like first contact stories and kind of conversations where people are trying to say things to other people that don't really understand them. And so that, again, plays very specifically to something I love. But unlike The Weir, which is in sixth place, this book matches that cool idea with some stonk and plonk characters. And I very much like that too. And I can see how someone might not like it quite as much as the first book. But like the first book is sublime and this book is very excellent indeed. And uh, yeah, I'm kind of very happy to put it at the top of my ballot. Uh, and I'm glad that I enjoyed it as much as the uh, first novel. Uh, Liz. Yes, I would say that I can see why you wouldn't like it as much as the first novel, because the first the first novel has that wonderful I am experiencing this society and learning about this society and it's also great and it's hard for a second book in the same universe to live up to that. But I do think I I felt it started a little bit slowly and then in the last couple of hundred pages I really got what it was going to be 
like what was going to be the theme. Not, not. I mean, it doesn't start slowly in plot turns, but I think it's really at the end of it that all the things, the kind of, you know, paths that have been laid through the first two thirds start to come together. And you start to see why a character has to be, you know, moved from A to B in the first two thirds in order for it to satisfactorily kind of end up at C at the end. Like it all, all starts to come together uh, very nicely in a way, in a way that you want, and therefore, in like hindsight, the first section does not seem slow at all. And I also thought, yeah, as a second book in a series, it manages to add that extra thing, and that the extra thing in this case is kind of uh, even more thinking about um, societies where individuals are not necessarily solely individuals. Um, but are linked or you know have access to the thoughts and feelings of other other individuals and what that brings to you as a society and how you have kind of three very different societies that approach this in a different way and how they kind of all end end up I think you know working out about this in in different ways it's not very coherent but obviously, I'm looking at what I mean. Like, there's basically three very different approaches to not being an individual who is the sole individual in your own own mind. And I think you see at the end that these three are going to come together. Um, and how, um, especially with I won't I won't spoil too much, Valens, but especially with uh, Twenty Cicada and his eventual uh, decisions and outcome, I really enjoyed. Oh, I love him as a character already. Love, love, love. Very excited by where that's going. Um, and, and also, I know that John talks about, about reading novels whilst not thinking too hard about what the author might be doing with particular characters and where they might be taking them. But I, that, <laughs> big alarm bells have gone off with that character and I'm very excited about where, where that goes. So, and, and, Again, I just assume that Martine is good enough that nothing is in her novel, not for a reason, and it will all come out. Um, but I turn out to be wrong about that, about the cats. Apparently, sometimes a cat is just a cat. No, a cat is always excellently a cat. I did. I wanted to say, I wanted to say, um, actually, I was, I was slightly wrong. Uh, the year that the previous Martine won, I also thought the um, 10,000 Doors of January was very, very good. Uh, very, very different. Uh, but I really enjoyed that novel. But in fact, the second place novel and the most first place votes was for Sean and Maguire's middle game. Middle game is, is good, but I got slightly, I thought I had good ideas, but I don't, didn't think it stuck the ending. Well, I cannot tell you whether the Martine sticks the ending. And now we're going to discuss some of the themes we think are arising from these novels as a whole. I did want to say, like, it is interesting to me that two of these books, at least, are clearly highly influenced by lockdown because, like, The Galaxy and the Ground Within and Project Hail Mary both feel very much like books that were written by someone who was inside and could not leave. And they are books about being inside and being unable to leave. And that interested me um and i thought i thought it was cool kind of yeah just thought it was cute kind of i think expected that that might be a theme of some of the novels getting nominated for things at the moment uh but yeah i found that kind of curious i guess i think i think that's true for the chambers for the weir i rather less charitably just think he's not very good at writing two characters together unless those two characters happen to be the same character in two bodies i don't want to spoil the ending but in the ending i got a very strong sense of 
Dr. Zargul's Book of Earthlets, which is a science fiction novel for two-year-olds. And in the bit where they were putting the team together for the spaceship, I got a very strong sense of um, Hugh Walters' novels in which there's a kind of global space force that picks stereotypical people from each country. And I feel like the Russian in that was better drawn than the Russian in the Weir. So, you know, so that was also aimed at eight-year-olds. So, so yeah, a little bit of aliens in alien suit in, in human suits or humans in alien suits, because um, that was a cross-cutting theme of this. The aliens in the Becky Chambers are not quite as alien as I'd like them to be. Give Weir some credit. He does some hard thinking about what sort of world generates life that's like Rocky. And I feel like we could have, Chambers could do with doing a little bit more of that in her world building rather than just assuming that you get, I mean, it felt like the cantina, right? I would argue that there is an extent to which all human writing about aliens is uh, humans in alien suits because uh, we are limited by our own uh, capacity to imagine. Uh, and that's a deeply unhelpful comment. But I've, I think... Chambers is, I think, very deliberately trying to imagine, like, well, let's not constrain ourselves to what we can imagine developing, but let's just say, what if completely bizarre creatures evolved? Like, and I kind of think that's almost kind of a nice way of trying to get around the problem because then you're not limited by your imagination of how life could evolve. Uh, you're just like, colors, maybe. And I, I did, I, I kind of respect that, but I do take your point. Um, and like, the Martine does a very good job. Well, yeah, I think the Martine does a very good job with alien feeling aliens. Uh, so, you know. Uh, well, I mean, I think the Martine does a very good with, job with um, different different human societies as well, right? So with all her barbarians. I mean, that's, that's the thing. In, in some ways, it feels that the different human societies in Martine's book have kind of more kind of communications difficulties and barriers between them than the completely alien aliens in Becky Chambers' books do. There's a lot of kind of points of commonality from childhood that childhood kind of does some of the same sorts of things in all these different societies. And and, and I think Martine doesn't fall into that trap. You know, her, her, her different human societies are very alien in the way that actual different human societies can be. Yeah, I, mean, I was thinking the difference between like the, the Texclan and Zell Station people who are not on a first, first contact trajectory. But it's also easier to do that with only kind of two, you know, really two societies to play with. And in a reservation about the Aoki, her aliens are really not very alien, even by the standards of these things. And they are literally wearing human suits. So, you know. Important. You know, that's not one of the things that her demon is not very demonic and her aliens are not very alien-like. That's that's one of the things. I thought the demon was quite demonic, but maybe, uh, I don't know, that might be... He feels demonic, but also familiar in the way that, like, you know, all demon figures in literature kind of... It's like Dr. Faust, yeah. Yeah. I sort of feel like I sort of feel like part of this is, like, the same reason that you never get properly compelling descriptions of hell, because you can't imagine, like, an eternity of suffering, because you're only human. But if there is a god, and he has created an eternity of suffering, I believe it will be an eternity of suffering, and I just can't imagine it. Yeah, but that's also why having people getting eternities of suffering needs to be given a little bit more weight in the novel than it necessarily is in 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 Light from a Couple of Stars. Well, I mean, let's let's be honest here. There's no such thing as hell or aliens, so there's no point in being too realistic about these things. 
It's sort of the same way that, you know, you can't, you never dwell too much in hell in the good place because, like, the thought is unimaginable. You did go on about the sort of book that physicists, so so the Martine is the sort of book that civil servants like because the politics and the diplomacy in those novels is just, um, it's fantastic. And um, despite the fact that Parker Chan has worked as a diplomat, the diplomacy in that book didn't ring true for me. And that is because I think I said earlier that human conversations don't often don't go in the way that either character expects. And Martine does that a lot. And Parker Chan does that not at all. <laughs> so every conversation that anybody has in, comes out the way that one of the people was expecting to. And that's not how diplomacy and politics work. You said, oh, the sort of book physicists like, and then proceeded to not at all talk about that, but go on, on, on about diplomacy. But I do want to bring it up because I think you have a point, which is we talked about cosy escapism when we talked about the chambers. But from a different point of view, the weir is absolutely also cosy escapism. Yeah, no, 100%. And so it, it's weird to think like the, those two things are definitely both cosy escapism, even though I think if you told like, you know, fans of, fans of Andy Weir, you are <laughs> reading something which is cosy escapism in the same way I might read a romance novel or you might read the Becky Chambers. They probably would absolutely not think that. Alison just said that even though Parker Chan worked as a diplomat, like she had problems with the Parker Chan book because it didn't ring true to her in terms of diplomacy. And I said part of the reason the Weir is the sort of book physicists like is because it does a lot of linear extrapolation in ways that don't break science. And you read as a physicist an awful lot of books that just do bananas things with physics. I've never really minded that, but I do have a lot of friends who I think mind it a lot more than me. Uh, and the Weir. I think one of the reasons why I've got a lot of friends who really like the Weir is because I think the Weir doesn't do that for the physicists who mind it. But equally, there are very few things in SF where I have a professional problem with because I'm quite happy to suspend my disbelief about stuff that isn't physically rigorous. And I think SF expects us to do that more with physics and maybe with biology than it does with other stuff. But I don't know whether that's actually true or whether that's just like a bias I have from understanding one of those things and not the other. So the point you actually made when we were having this discussion not on the podcast was I got over this thing with physics a long time ago. So maybe, Alison, it's time for you to get over it in terms of politics and the stuff you remember from your civil service career and, and kind of sorts of organisational structures. Because I am very interested in the way that organisational structures work and humans interact in them. And I like science fiction that does that and I like it to get it a bit right. Um, so yeah, maybe I do need to get over myself. But I got over the physics thing as well, because I mean, I do know that science, <laughs> lots of science fiction doesn't take its science too seriously, which I think is to its benefit. Liz, do you have any comments on how great science fiction is at biology? Nope. It's nearly dinner time. So no. And then do you want to talk about lesbians? I mean, I just put that because I realised there's an awful lot of lesbians in these books. Um, the primary relationship of the Martine, the Clark... You know, the the Parker Chan, the Oki are all basically centred around uh, lesbian partnerships, which I thought was interesting. And even the uh, Chambers, which like has a nominally, well, it has a heterosexual relationship, a human male and a female who is of a different species who can change gender if she wants to. And like, I would argue that just the interspecies aspect makes it queer, but it's also not quite as even if you ignore that aspect, it's not quite as simple as being like, that is a straight relationship. So it's an, it's an interesting point that a lot of these do explore that as a kind of thing. 
Yeah, I was thinking, but it's it's interesting to me. It's not even just queer relationships. It is specifically in those four, like lesbian relationships, and indeed, you know, and kind of older lesbians in the Aoki. It's a, a theme I wasn't expecting to come up uh, with such a disparate group of books. I think it's quite interesting to see. I mean, there is a lot of it, and and there aren't any there aren't any positive depictions of human heterosexual relationships in these books. Don't think. I mean, the Project Hail Mary has no depictions of good relationships, whatever. I mean, I guess we've had plenty of years of that. Um, yeah, that's it. But we haven't really, because what we actually had was relationships between science dudes and Smurfette. So that doesn't count. Yeah. Yeah, but I still think like the heterosexuals can, you know, take a back seat for a year. Fine. I don't mind. Didn't mind it. But I, I would agree that there are a lot of lesbians in these books. If that's what you like, then the Hugo reading is for you. I had another cross-cutting theme that I didn't put in that I'm going to say very quickly, which is that I have never read all of the books on the Hugo Ballot before. <laughs> um, this is like this is like one of David Lodge's um, um, humiliation rounds, isn't it? I have never read all the books on the Hugo Ballot before in time to vote, and it's very interesting reading books which are some of which are ones that you would never naturally pick up to read, and and then getting to sort of think, well, how does the field all fit together at the moment? Because some of these books are books that I would not normally have chosen. That's why I like, I really like reading the Hugo shortlist because it forces me to expand beyond like my kind of defaults. And sometimes I am really pleasantly surprised. And sometimes I'm not, but the amount that I've gained from doing it has been far more than the amount of time I've wasted on stuff I didn't really like. I think, I think, I think in, in general, the balance is very much towards it being a positive thing rather than a negative thing in my case. Um, so yeah, I like it. I've, I've, I try and do it. If you work out from our votes, what our consensus, uh, kind of ballot would be uh, a desolation called peace is in first place followed by light from uncommon stars followed by she who became the sun followed by the galaxy and the ground within followed by a master of gin followed by project hail mary so we all agree on our first and last place picks and there's a little bit of jiggling around in the middle i think consensus wise we all think the uh, parker chan as a consensus we think the parker chan and ioki are better than the chambers and the clark um i know that liz likes the clark better than me and allison sorry liz i i just want to say that, that consensus list is the same as my list so we should just have had a dictatorial thing where i told you what to believe and that would have done hmm seems unlikely yeah given how much i disagree with the consensus list i will not be listening to solely allison's opinions on books what do we think will actually be the order of the books on the shortlist? I think it might be quite close to our consensus list. I wonder whether the Chambers will do slightly better than we have ranked it. I think the Weir is going to do much better than we have ranked it. I think it's going to get a lot of first place votes from people who are very sad about what sort of books have been winning the Hugo recently. I think it might get a lot of first place votes, but I think um, it will... We lost first place votes and it will still not come second because uh, the overwhelming consensus of the community is not that, even though there is a strong minority for whom it is that. But I might be wrong. I think Martine will win. Does anyone disagree with me on that? Nope. I don't think any of the other books can take it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it, since it's already, you know, the previous one won, I think in a very similar situation where there was other good stuff on the shortlist, but it was probably just above them. And I think the same thing will happen again. Yeah, I think the Weir will get a lot of first place votes. 
but then when it gets knocked out, it'll be interesting to see if any of them actually redistribute to other stuff on the shortlist or if they kind of all go into the no award bucket or just nowhere bucket because it feels like it appears appeals to a quite different set of people. What do we think should have been on the ballot that wasn't? Like if you could take, if we take Project Hail Mary off the ballot, what sixth book should have been on that ballot? No offence to anyone who loved Project Hail Mary, but it is our sixth place choice. So I would assume that is the one we would replace with a different one if we were the if we were the monarchs of the Hugo Awards. I mean, I, I would put Adrian Tchaikovsky's Shards of Earth on there because it is, you know, having looked at books which we say, oh, the aliens are all a bit too human ali- humans in alien suits. That is a book which really feels like it has some quite alien aliens. Um, included one who is sort of a distributed a distributed intelligence and it's got all that coupled to an actual plot some good space opera a crew being rounded up to essentially do a kind of semi heist heist plot line um kind of universe destroying threat um it's just got loads of stuff in there as well as having a lot of these aliens and also um you know some humans who are clearly dealing with some trauma from last time the aliens uh, came to attack. So I think it kind of covers a lot of stuff which is in some of the Hugo finalists, but does it all in one package and does it really well. So I put that on. Alison? I will put on Monica Burns, The Actual Star, because I like massively ambitious books, even if they're a bit flawed, and I thought it was massively ambitious, more ambitious than anything else I read, apart from possibly the Martine, because it ties these themes of historical fantasy with modern day contemporary SF with far future SF and it brings it all together in a kind of twine story and it's just like cat lip for Alison's and it's not perfect but I would love to see more books like that on the Hugo ballot please um I have a I have a dirty secret listeners uh which is I haven't read that many books of 2021 uh so I'm just going through my goodreads to find out which books were from 2021 uh so I can have an informed opinion and I shall read them out now I read from 2021 The Psychopath Club by Sandra Bond The Rising Storm Star Wars The High Republic by Kevin Scott The Unraveling by Benjamin Rosenbaum The Jasmine Throne by Tasha Siri Leviathan Falls by James S.A. Corey and Star Wars The High Republic Into the Dark by Claudia Gray. Of those books, I'd probably go for The Psychopath Club, but The Jasmine Throne is a close second. But yeah, of those, I think The Psychopath Club is is the best one. Uh, I have already plugged this book. But if you haven't read it, go and get it, because it is great. Uh, Especially if you like The Wasp Factory by Ian Banks. It has a lot of kind of... It really reminded me of that uh, in a good way. I wouldn't have nominated either of Star Wars's, and I didn't nominate Leviathan Thor's. Uh, Expanse always were already won in series, so I don't think it needs any recognition singly. I think they work better as a series anyway. Did you not read? Did you read Redemptor? Oh, sorry, I should note I'm not um, mentioning ones that are on the Lodestar uh, ballot. Ooh, okay. I'm not sure whether I would have nominated any of them for best novel, but I did. The ones I have read are very good, but like. I quite like how different the Lodestar and novel ballots end up being every year because uh, it gives me a better view of the genre. Goodness, that sounded wanky. I have a question. Lodestar's not a Hugo. Do they still redistribute votes or no? Because like, if you nominate a novella in Best Novel, the votes would get nominated, like would get shunted back into novella by the administrators. I assume they don't do that for Lodestar. No, you can explicitly, no, you can explicitly be nominated for both the Lodestar and Best Novel. 
or best novella. It does slightly surprise me then that there hasn't been a little bit more crossover between the two, but maybe this is why Lodestar was good. But this is why it took forever to get a young adult category into the Hugos. Yeah, I think everyone was very worried about things just being in both. Because people were very worried about the exclusivity of it, particularly as, as, as we see, there's so much stuff that feels quite young adult-like on the getting onto the novel ballot. We might talk about the Lodestar nominees later, or sorry, the Lodestar finalists later in the year. We might not. Well, apparently we're quite, we could talk, we could bleat on for some time about science fiction. Who knew? It's interesting. Listeners, we have been recording for four hours. Now, admittedly, we did record a different episode earlier today, so that's not all Hugo's, but I joined this Zoom call four hours and 53 seconds ago as I speak now. That is a long session by Octothorpe standards. But that was the Octothorpe podcast. And it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. I mean, I'm also, this book, uh, uh, so far I'm at the point where this book has flat cats in it and I'm like, oh, Martine is too clever a science fiction writer. So this is both flat cats in that it's a call out to flat cat and tri- to the flat cats, i.e. the tribbles, right? We have a cute species that is taking over the ship. Um, but clearly that's going to be linked to the overall theme as well. There's no way those cats aren't turning up later as either the larval form of something or an element of something or something that's going to be integrated into a hive mind or something of that kind. Ah, you're making the classic mistake of uh, not understanding people who like cats. Sometimes a cat is just a cat. Sometimes a cat is just a cat. Oh, for fuck's sake. It's better better not be just a cat because fuck, she's missed a trick there. No, she hasn't. It's a cat that illuminates something about the personality of people on the ship. Yeah, they've been infected by a parasite that causes them to like cats. No, they're just cats. <laughs> your, your, um, your desire for mentions of cats to be not about cats is shining through here. But as someone who likes cats, I very much enjoyed the cats. Being infected by a parasite. And we are two thirds of us. So, so Liz has previously volunteered at a cat cafe. So Liz is also uh, full on board the cat train. I did yesterday. It was very nice. Oh Jesus! <laughs> if we were the Supreme Court, we would be ruling two to one in favour of cats. In favour of just having cute cats turn up in your novel for no good reason on a spaceship. No, a good reason rather than what would actually happen on any actual spaceship, which is that they'd have had a massive eradication programme. I think there is good precedent for letting cats on naval ships, right? Yes, because they because they eat mice and because they do actually have massive... The cats on naval ships are an eradication process programme for the mice and rats on naval ships, and no kidding, because naval ships store food. Yeah, I know, I know, I know this, but I think if you get to a point where you're ships are sufficiently well right like parrots i think i think probably people <laughs> on ships shit we are having the podcast guys we're having the podcast we should stop this no because a big argument about cats okay. is not what we want there's a reason you can have the cats are there to also illuminate something about how people change mm. how people in- interact 
with cats. And it's also very much about like, you know, how do you continue being a person when you are in space on a warship? And maybe one of those things is seeing someone unexpectedly petting a cat. Anyway, I don't I don't have a problem with another alien life form turning up in this book. And um, I'm totally up for that. And clearly there are things I don't know yet because I'm halfway through. Yeah, but they're not the cats. The theme music for this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin MacLeod and Competech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.